Section 5 of the Shakespeare Apocrypha. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dave Campbell of Burnaby, British Columbia. The Shakespeare Apocrypha by C. F. Tucker Brooke, Section 5. 6. Thomas Lord Cromwell was entered on the Stationer's Register by William Cotton, August 11, 1602. In the same year appeared the first edition Q1, with the title, The True Chronicle History of the Whole Life and Death of Thomas Lord Cromwell, as it hath been sundry times publicly acted by the Right Honourable the Lord Chamberlain his servants, written by W.S., imprinted at London for William Jones, and are to be sold at his house near Holborn Conduit at the sign of the gun, 1602. A second quattro, Q2, was printed by Thomas Snodham in 1613. The only important variation from Q1 on the title page of this edition consists on the necessary change of the name of Shakespeare's company, quote, as it hath been sundry times publicly acted by the King's Majesty's servants, written by W.S., unquote. The play was included in the third and fourth Shakespeare folios, F1, F2, and was reprinted by Roe, Pope, and again separately by R. Walker in 1734 as A Tragedy by Shakespeare. Q2, the later quattro, was as usual followed by the addition of the folios, as well as by Malone, who was not acquainted with Q1, and has thus served as basis for all modern texts. Q1 is certainly to be preferred. The variations of Q2 are for the most part due merely to the conventionalization of syntax and spelling. But there are several cases where the original reading has been falsified by the insertion or substitution of new words. The later editions have no critical importance. Thomas Lord Cromwell exceeds Sir John Oldcastle in all the particular defects of that defective though interesting play, and it has fewer merits. The scenes of Cromwell are disconnected and undramatic to such a degree that the real plot cannot be said to begin before the close of the third act, and there is hardly a passage in the work with the exception of Act 3, Scene 3, which excites special attention. Tieck and Schlegel, to their lasting discredit, have defended the geniusness of this play, and Ulrici also is inclined against his better judgment to accept it as a very early work of Shakespeare anterior to 1592. Hopkinson assigns the main part of the performance to Green, but he alone of English critics would like to establish Shakespeare's connection as reviser of the greater part of the comic scenes, and of Act 3, Scene 2 and 3, Act 4, Scenes 1 and 5, and Act 5. Other writers have suggested the authorship of Wentworth Smith, William Sly, Haywood and Drayton, respectively, but there is strong reason against describing the play to any of these. While it appears as absolutely certain as so undemonstrable a matter well can be, that William Shakespeare was never concerned with a single line of it. On this point, it is pleasant to find the first and the last of the critics of Cromwell in complete and emphatic agreement. Malone says, quote, To vindicate Shakespeare from having written a single line of this piece would be a waste of time. The poverty of language, the barrenness of incident, and the inartificial conduct of every part of the performance place it rather perhaps below the compositions of even the second-rate dramatic authors of the age in which it was produced. And Mr. Swinburne writes, in the same strain, but with even greater and rather excessive disapproval, quote, Thomas Lord Cromwell is a piece of such utterly shapeless, spiritless, bodiless, soulless, senseless, helpless, worthless rubbish that there is no known writer of Shakespeare's age to whom it could be ascribed without the infliction of an unwarrantable insult on that writer's memory. Unquote. 
The source of the play is The History Concerning the Life, Acts, and Deaths of the Famous and Worthy Counselor Lord Thomas Cromwell, Earl of Essex, in Fox's Book of Martyrs. The story of Frescobald, which Fox has incorporated, comes, as Malone has remarked, from one of Bandello's novels, Part 2, Number 27. 7. The London Prodigal appears not to have been entered in the stationer's books. The only early quattro, Q1, was published in 1605 with the title The London Prodigal, as it was played by the King's Majesty's Servants by William Shakespeare London, printed by T.C. for Nathaniel Butter, and are to be sold near St. Austin's Gate at the Sign of the Pied Bull, 1605. It was next published in the third and fourth Shakespeare folios, F1, F2, in supplements to Rose and to Pope's Shakespeare and in careless separate reprints by Walker and Tonson. Footnote. In 1734, both these publishers bought out worthless editions of Locrine, Old Castle, The London Prodigal, and The Puritan, while Walker printed Cromwell in the same year, and Tonson, a Yorkshire tragedy, in 1735, in which last year appeared also another reprint of Old Castle, this time with no publisher's name. All these editions claim Shakespeare unreservedly as the author, and they are all quite worthless, save his curiosities. Naturally, the rival publishers were foes, and Tonson has denounced Walker in unmeasured terms as a pirate. End of footnote. All these additions ascribe the comedy unreservedly to Shakespeare, and their unanimous testimony gains weight from the facts that the London Prodigal was performed by Shakespeare's company, and that the Quattro was printed during the poet's lifetime for Butter, the publisher of King Lear. Yet in spite of this evidence, and the acceptance of its genuineness by Tieck, Schlegel, and Hopkinson, any theory which supports the play's authenticity may safely be branded as utterly untenable. The London Prodigal deals entirely with humors and manners. Like the Puritan, which it resembles in many points, it depends for its value and effect on the bare plot and the really admirable delineation of the externalities of contemporary life. Shakespeare's Catholicity and psychological insight are conspicuously absent, and every principle of his dramatic morality is outraged in the treatment of the prodigal's career. The only supposition on which the attribution can at all be justified is that put forward by Mr. Fleet, namely, that Shakespeare plotted the comedy roughly and then left his vague design to be very imperfectly executed by another. Mr. Fleet feels certain that the London prodigal and Thomas Lord Cromwell are by the same author, and Ulrici ascribes our play to one of the writers of Sir John Oldcastle. There seems no reason for either belief. Considered with regard to general spirit, the London prodigal is so full of the intimate details of domestic life, shows as much affinity perhaps to the early works of Decker or to those of Marston as to the writings of any other well-known dramatist of the period. But in Decker's case, such a theory of authorship would become plausible only if he could be shown to have written for the King's players just before 1605. We know that Marsden's Malcontent, 1607, was acted by the King's Majesty's servants. 8. The Puritan was entered at Stationer's Hall on August 6, 1607, by G. Eld, and published in quarto immediately after. The title page runs, The Puritan, or The Widow of Watling Street, acted by the Children of Pauls, written by W.S., imprinted at London by G. Eld, 1607. The next editions were those of the third and fourth Shakespeare folios, F1, F2, of Rowe and Pope, and the separate reprints of Walker and Tonson in 1734. 
The first definitive recognition of this comedy as the work of Shakespeare appears in a bookseller's catalogue of plays, published in 1656. The authority of the folios doubtless established the belief in its authenticity for a time, and we find Gildan in 1702 alluding to it as one of the genuine plays. Since the time of Malone, however, no English critic seems to have doubted its spuriousness, and of the Germans, perhaps only Tieck and Schlegel have attempted to enroll it among the works of Shakespeare. Crude and farcical as the Puritan is, it contains some good bourgeois scenes of a thoroughly un-Shakespearean kind, and has, moreover, the not very usual merit of making the reader laugh with genuine amusement. The spirit of the piece is light-hearted and pleasing, but it has small claim to consideration as serious art. On the strength of the initials W.S., and for no other reason, the Puritan has been attributed to each of the two forgotten dramatists, William and Wentworth Smith. There is slightly better cause, possibly from internal evidence, to accept the theory of Middleton's authorship, favored by Flea, Bullen, Hopkinson, and Ward. But this attribution, besides being entirely problematical, is not in accord with the certainty first pointed out by Dr. Farmer that the second scene of Act One, with its college cant and reminiscence, is the work of an Oxford man. Footnote. Note, for example, the references to quadrangles, battling, and to the Welsh at Jesus College. End of footnote. So far, it must be generally allowed, rather less than no progress at all has been made towards a solution of the mystery of this play's authorship. Nor can the present editor presume to offer more than a very definite and tentative answer to the question. Yet there are, I think, several facts hitherto overlooked which appear incontrovertible, and which, if they do not justify a final decision, should at least offer to future inquiry that definite terminus a quo so conspicuously lacking in the contradictory and unsupported theories previously advanced. The most obvious of these facts is the extremely close affinity between the Puritan and the comedy of Eastward Ho, published just two years earlier in 1605, and authoritatively assigned to Chapman, Johnson, and Marston. It will be impossible, perhaps, for anyone to read the two plays consecutively without being struck by their likeness in all the more significant and less easily imitated characteristics. The outward details of plot are for the most part different, but in general tone and dramatic method, as well as in a number of mannerisms and personal touches, there is a similarity which approaches near to absolute identity, and which makes it very hard to resist the conviction that the pen of one of the authors of Eastward Ho has been employed in the other play. It is not unlikely that in the later drama, as in the earlier, we have to do with a case of collaboration. The connection of the Puritan with Bartholomew Fair would be explained if we could prove Ben Jonson to have been concerned in the former. But I feel much more sure of the authorship of John Marston, who, like the creator of Pieboard, was a member of Oxford University, and whose special traits, as known from his independent works and partially distinguishable in the tangled mesh of Eastward Ho, are conspicuous in the Puritan. The outlook upon London life in the last two dramas is practically identical. Both are realistic in the coarsest sense, and the types are the same, representing and satirizing in the one play as in the other the two hostile classes of court and city. Touchstone and Sir Geoffrey, Quicksilver and Master Edmund have little to distinguish them. Sir Petronell is but a composite of Pieboard and Pennydub, with the villainy of the first and the inanity of the second. But the greatest resemblance appears in the female characters. Gertrude and Maul, one hopes and believes, can have but one creator. Both are revolting to the fingertips, twin embodiments of middle-class vulgarity without a shade of difference. 
with their craving for coaches and ladyship, their loud expressed dread of leading apes in hell, their continued mouthing of obscenities, they illustrate what, in one of the few pregnant phrases to be found in German dissertational literature, has been called the schmutzige Spur, which Marston's hand leaves ever behind it. How often minor allusions in the Puritan answer to similar references in Eastward Ho may be seen to a small extent from the notes to the former play. Both presume an encyclopedic knowledge on the author's part of the counter-prison, with its manners and customs, its denizens and apartments. In both also we find sarcastic references to King James' new-made knights, though the allusions in the Puritan are somewhat milder than the bold satire of Eastward Ho, which assisted in drawing down upon Marston's innocent associates the wrath of the sovereign. The two plays, likewise, were acted by what was practically the same company, though in the three years that separated them its name and personnel had suffered alteration. In both dramas before us there are frequent parodies and imitations of Shakespeare, humorous often, but not unkindly. In the one we have the changes rung on Pistol's rants about the Welkin, and see Hamlet a footman entering in haste, for the purpose of being asked, Hamlet, are you mad? To the delectation probably of an audience already beginning to addle its brains and lose its temper over this infinitely discussed question. In the other play, that which immediately concerns us, Puttock and Ravenshaw serve Pyboard as Falstaff has been served by their colleagues Fang and Snare, while Corporal Oath is made to sit, instead of Banco's spectre, as, quote, the ghost ith white sheets at upper end of the table, unquote, and the mighty tragedy of the fifth act of Othello is burlesqued by the imitation of Pyboard, Skirmish, and Oath. A further characteristic of the Puritan which can hardly fail to impress the careful reader is the especial bitterness of the author against his puttocks and ravenshaws. It is obvious that he looks upon himself as belonging to the poor scholar class, and that if he does not regard Pyboard as a friend and a brother, he at least resents in a very personal way the insults and indignities to which the latter is subjected by the minions of the law. It seems certain that there must have gone into the vivid portraiture of the poltroonery, brutality, and rapacity of Yeoman Dogson and his confederates, and into the realistic delineation of conditions in the counter, a very considerable amount of unpleasant personal experience. The general similarity of the Puritan to Bartholomew Fair is, of course, obvious, and has been alluded to repeatedly. For the most part, the likeness is one of subject rather than treatment, and has no great significance. But in the case of a few details, it merits more serious consideration. I cannot but think that the rough sketch of Master Fullbelly the Minister, who is an excellent feeder and will be horribly drunk upon occasion, though he rails against players mightily, because they once brought him drunk upon the stage, stood clear before the memory of Ben Johnson when he came in 1614 to immortalize the race of Fullbellies in zeal of the land busy. The name of the central figure in the Puritan, George Pyboard, is probably a punning allusion to George Peel, who was the perpetrator, according to contemporary story, of two of the tricks described in the comedy. For any more definite information as to the source and authorship of the play, we must be content to await the discovery of further facts. 9. A Yorkshire tragedy has from its first appearance been coupled with the name of Shakespeare. On May 2, 1608, it was entered in the stationer's register, by the notorious Thomas Pavier, the publisher of Oldcastle, as a play by William Shakespeare. A quarto, Q1, followed at once, with the title A Yorkshire Tragedy, Not So New as Lamentable and True, 
acted by His Majesty's Players at the Globe, written by W. Shakespeare, at London, printed by R.B. for Thomas Povier, and are to be sold at his shop on Cornhill, near to the Exchange, 1608. At the top of the first page of the text is the heading, All's One, or One of the Four Plays in One, called A Yorkshire Tragedy, as it was played by the King's Majesty's Players, unquote. Eleven years later, a second quarto, Q2, was issued with the imprint written by W. Shakespeare, printed by T.P. 1619. The text of this latter edition, though inferior to that of Q1 and the few points of difference, was followed by the editors of the third and fourth Shakespeare folios, F1, F2, Rowe, Pope, and Tonson. The murders represented in a Yorkshire tragedy occurred in 1605, and are thus recorded in Stowe's Chronicle, quote, Walter Caverley of Caverley in Yorkshire, Esquire, murdered two of his young children, stabbed his wife into the body with full purpose to have murdered her, and instantly went from his house to have slain his youngest child at nurse, but was prevented. For which fact, at his trial in York, he stood mute and was judged to be pressed to death, according to which judgment he was executed at the castle of York on the 5th of August, 1605. Unquote. This sensational crime, as might be supposed, attracted no less attention than the earlier murder of Arden. At least three narrative accounts of it were licensed within a couple of months on its occurrence. On June 12, 1605, a pamphlet was entered with the title, quote, A book called Two Unnatural Murders, the one practiced by Master Coverley, a Yorkshire gent, upon his wife, and happened on his children the 23rd of April, 1605, unquote. In July, we have notice of, quote, a ballad of lamentable murder done in Yorkshire by a gent upon two of his own children, sore woundings his wife and nurse, unquote. And on August 24, we hear already of, quote, the arraignment, condemnation, and execution of Master Caverly at York in August 1605, unquote. The authenticity of the Yorkshire tragedy has been allowed by Stevens, Ulrici, Hopkinson, and Ward, and others. But the case which has been made out for the negative by Malone, Terrell, Knight, Hollywell Phillips, Simmons, and Swinburne seems much the stronger. The barbaric force of the play and the splendor of some of the prose it contains cannot fail to impress the reader, but the late date, 1605 to 1608, is in itself an almost conclusive argument against the possibility of Shakespeare's authorship. Neither in characterization, nor in plot, nor in metrical peculiarities have the most ardent defenders of the Yorkshire tragedy's authenticity pretended that there is any approach to Shakespeare's manner subsequent to 1605. There are only two really considerable characters in the tragedy, the husband and the wife, and they are represented in a quite un-Shakespearean fashion. Each is a mere type, not even invested with a name and quite without the definite personality that Shakespeare in his maturity gives even to subordinate figures. The husband is a brilliant incarnation of wild fury and misdirected remorse, an unreasoning hatred of the world in which he has played so ignoble a role, and the ever-present consciousness of personality and family disgrace drive him to seek momentary relief in brutish violence. The wife typifies the opposite extreme, of rather unattractive docility. When this is said, there was little more to say. Few or none of the individualizing and humanizing touches that Shakespeare gives his characters are here to be found. The plot itself, in its nature narrow, sensational, and quite devoid of the morality of all Shakespeare's later work, 
speaks loud against the possibility of his authorship. To admit all this, as has been done, and explain a Yorkshire tragedy as a sudden excursion by Shakespeare during the last decade of his life into a new and essentially lower field of literature, is to join the critical school of the now famous friend of Schlegel, who defended the authenticity of the Puritan on the grounds that it was a successful attempt of Shakespeare to forsake his own style and write for once in that of Ben Jonson. Finally, the verse of the Yorkshire tragedy has few, if any, of the characteristics of Shakespeare's later verse. The end-stop lines amount to about 88%, an exceedingly high proportion for late work, while as many as 20% of the verse lines, two in every ten, are in rhyme. This large number of rhyming lines is not to be found in any but the earliest of the genuine plays, and the rhymes, moreover, are frequently obtained by means of distortion in the word order such as Shakespeare was not reduced to even in his apprentice work. The following six lines exemplify the quality of verse to be found in the duller parts of a Yorkshire tragedy. Quote, Oh, that I might my wishes now attain, I should then wish you living were again. Though I did beg with you, which thing I feared, Oh, t'was the enemy my eyes so bleared. Oh, would you could pray heaven to me forgive, that I would unto my end repentant live. If Shakespeare's hand is to be traced anywhere in this play, we must look for it solely in the two hundred lines of prose scattered through the first four scenes. Some of this prose is indeed very fine, particularly the opening scene between the servants and the splendid monologue of the husband in scene four. The latter passage of twenty-five lines to the beginning of the feeble verse appendage is certainly the poetic climax of the play and perhaps not unworthy of Shakespeare. Yet it may be denied most emphatically that there is, here or elsewhere, anything, either in thought or in expression, which bears credible witness to the presence of the true Shakespearean touch. As the heading of the first page of the Quartos indicates, the brief Yorkshire tragedy, which runs to little over 700 lines, was performed in connection with three other dramatic fragments. It is probable that these last were of yet cruder workmanship than our play, and that no effort was made to preserve them from oblivion once they had served their turn upon the stage. Their connection with the Yorkshire tragedy may have been solely a matter of theatrical convenience, but it is at least possible that some or all of them concerned the earlier history of Calverley and presented much the same incidents which Wilkins has used in The Miseries of Enforced Marriage. End of section 5. Recording by Dave Campbell of Burnaby, British Columbia.